Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. And glad to see the room filled. Do we have to bring in chairs? I was here late. So the chairs come in? Are they all set up? Good. We've actually uh, actually going to order more chairs because you guys are faithful in coming to services or to Sunday school, which is really good. All right. Uh, We are about a month into our look on biblical parenting. Actually, we are exactly a month into our biblical look on biblical parenting. And I think we spent the last couple of weeks moving at what I feel as a, and if I feel this way, you've got to feel this way, this sort of a quick pace, right? Uh, we've worked through a lot of these passages of Scripture. We've thought deeply about how uh, these Scriptures move. You've had to listen to this motor mouth go through all these things, and I know that can be its own challenge, so I'm, I'm sorry for those of you who listen slow. Uh, my sense that is that uh, even if it's been enjoyable for us to work through these hard issues and to think through them deeply, uh, it's been a bit of a mental, maybe a spiritual workout for all of us. And uh, you, you may even be feeling it, it be sort of an emotional workout for us at times as well. And if you're feeling some fatigue from that workout, that's, that's perfectly normal. In fact, that's good. We want that. We want you to feel like you've exercised your brain and your soul and your heart. But just as it's good for us to have those, our bodies exercise and have those strong feelings of, of sort of pain from a good workout, that soreness that comes after a good workout... It's good for our souls to feel sort of worked out and sore from uh, exerting ourselves and thinking through these important issues. But it's also important to rest between sets, as they say, right? Uh, It's important for our muscles to have some time to oxygenate and to kind of get back to recovery. And our soul needs that time to recover a little bit as well, to reflect, to consider. And hopefully you've done a lot of that on your own. Maybe you've um, uh, spoken with your spouse. I really hope you've gone home and talked about these things with your spouse. Uh, maybe you've discussed some of those questions here. You've, you've po- uh, posed some certain questions that we've raised here to one another and discussed them. Uh, maybe you've even pointed out areas in which you disagree with the teacher. I find that hard to believe, but perhaps that's actually occurred. Uh, no, actually, I hope you have found areas of disagreement and, and worked through those and realized that I was right anyway. Um, <clears throat> but I hope you've also reflected positively on your own parenting on these things, right? That you have, you have uh, worked through all those things and said, you know what, we're, you know, on the balance, we've got some areas of improvement, but, you know, on, on the whole, we're doing okay. Um, and before I go any further, since I kind of interrupted last week's speech, I just want you to know I shaved everything correctly this week. <laughs> The head is perfectly good. Nathan, we're good? Right? You know how it feels, man. If you don't have this done right, your whole day is off. So we should be on better footing today. I meant to mention that earlier. But uh, so for those of you who weren't here last week, you'll have to go back and listen to the recording in my own embarrassment and making a fool of myself even further. Anyway, so I hope you reflected on your parenting and, on, and, and what this has meant to you guys as well. But this week, I'd like for us to remember where we have been. So we're going to do a bit of a review and then I want to look at a few, just a few short practical outworkings of, uh, of what this looks like for, uh, for, for you, you as a parent. Uh, we've explored the depths, uh, so to speak, in our little parenting submarine, but this is sort of our week to up the periscope, look around, and, and see what we, we can find out. Brian, there's a great seat right here if you want to. No, you want to go back there? Okay, Baptist, that you are. There's only very few people I can say that to, and Brian's one I'm happy to embarrass about. So anyway, let's get into our, our review. If you recall, our first week, we defined what this class is not about. We talked about a few of the things that we're, we're not after. But then we drilled down into the foundation text for our study of biblical parenting through Deuteronomy 6. We, we looked at the instruction Moses gave the Israelites, and by extension, we acknowledge that he gave that also to us, that wherever we find ourselves, our duty is to teach our children diligently the commands of God for the purpose of cultivating in them the righteousness of God. That's our primary duty, and we take that text very, very seriously. Uh, we, we determine that our goal as parents, following the biblical instruction of parenting, is to guide our sons and daughters to become future brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. That's sort of our, our mission as biblical parents. And, and if that is our goal, then it transforms whatever the world might wish us to, to learn about parenting or what, what they might want to teach us about parenting. It's no longer about modifying behavior or deploying the latest in psychology to train them somehow. Those may have their benefits. There may be some benefit to looking at those. There's some good things to learn from them. But that's not ultimately what our parenting is about. It's not just behavior or modification because that's just not simply sufficient. Rather, 
Uh, it's about something much more than this correction of behavior. It's about driving at what flows from the heart. We've got to shepherd the heart of our kids. Uh, and that was our second lesson, shepherding the heart of our children. We, we, we examined what the Bible says about the human heart. We didn't find a lot of optimism there, that there, there, was, a, there was a whole bunch of bad that's involved in the, the human heart. So we looked at what the Bible had to say, and we concluded that our little angels that we hold so tenderly in our arms and love to look at their little coos and giggles and, and, and joy so deeply, well, they're actually enemies of Christ. And without a divine heart operation, these little angels who are enemies will continue to be ruled by the sin that is bound up in their hearts. It's an important place for us to start with our biblical parenting, recognizing that whatever behavior is coming out of them is something that is just simply natural to us in our human condition. And, and as we realize that about our kids, we also realize in our study that our children come to their sinful condition genetically. Uh, that is, we, we all inherited our sinful hearts from Adam and from Eve, from our first parents who sinned. And that means that our hearts are naturally just as unruly as our children's hearts. And so when we're shepherding our children's hearts, we're doing so, to, to borrow again from that Puritan Thomas Watson, we're doing so as dying, men, uh, dying man to dying men. We're all in this, so to speak, together, that as we are being shepherded by our Heavenly Father, so too are we then turning to shepherd the hearts of our children. Both we and our children need our hearts to be reoriented in what we worship, and like the Good Shepherd guides us along still waters and guards against the influences of the wolves around us, so too do we shepherd our children, guiding them towards what sustains them, and then guarding against those influences that would compete for their worship. And as the under-shepherds, we turn then to Ephesians 6 to understand the importance of authority. Uh, that order of authority, we learn, flows in a downward direction, right? It starts with God, and then goes to the parents, and then it goes to children. There's a little bit more uh, nuance in there. If we want to look at husband and wife relationships, we'll probably spend another Sunday on that at another point. But the, the general order is God, parents, children. And that authority is really very important, especially for our kids, uh, we exercise that authority as parents. We try to do so faithfully, and we insist that we be followed, uh, we obey, be obeyed by our children, not because we're so wise and, and worthy of being obeyed, but that because of our, that obedience to parents by our kids is actually obedience not just to us, but to the God who has instructed them to obey the authority that's been placed in their lives. And if they are going to follow that obedience, they're going to listen to that authority, then God has also promised something even greater. He's actually promised a reward, a lasting reward that he has established for our children who honor and obey their parents. This is a, a wonderful thing that when we embrace this concept of authority that we have been given, we insist that it be followed, not just because we wish to be obeyed, but because it is good for our children to realize that this divine reward awaits our obedient children. And that gives us, then, more encouragement to, to insist upon their obedience. And, and more than that, we also remembered that Paul gives a special admonition within that section towards our fathers. And dads in this room, we, we, we fully appreciate this. And I've had a couple of moms talk to me about this, too. And I really appreciate the perspective that that was provided to us as well. It's not limited just to fathers here, but, but Paul, for some reason, singles out dads to say, don't provoke your children to anger. Perhaps that's something normal on the Y chromosome. I don't know exactly what that mystery is exactly, but God has reminded dads, especially, do not provoke our children to anger. Maybe we have that natural inclination that way. Moms have simple inclinations as well that we need to be mindful of, but there's some reason that Paul puts this in front of us. And perhaps that is to remind us only that, and maybe if only to remind us, that our duty as parents in exercising that authority is not to be after authoritarianism, but to reflect, though very, very imperfectly, that our, uh, who our Heavenly Father is, whom we delight to serve ourselves as children. So even as we, we insist upon this authority going from God to parent to kid, we recognize that in so exercising that authority, we're teaching that there's a learning going on upwards from our kids to us to God. And that important flow of authority upwards and downwards, as we seek to exercise that authority, we begin to teach our kids something as well. And they are learning a great deal about not just us, but about our Heavenly Father as well. So then we looked at setting goals and developing character in our children. And while there are many very worthwhile goals, if we are not very careful about setting goals and establishing character traits within our kids, 
are, are um, we can allow these secondary, what we call secondary worthwhile goals, worthy secondary goals, these can eclipse our duty as parents. Uh, so athletics is a great thing. Music is a wonderful thing. Education is a very good thing. We even said that salvation is a goal of our kids, but that itself can turn itself turn into an idol if we're not careful as well. Our duty is not to allow these secondary worthwhile goals to in- eclipse our duty as parents. Instead, our duty as parents is to follow the biblical model of parenting, to develop character in our children by realigning what their hearts worship. And not just what their hearts worship, but also what our hearts worship. That, that lesson on the importance of the heart, the, the moral depravity of our heart is really important as we begin to understand ourselves and our parenting. And so we looked at Romans 1 and we looked at Galatians 6 to see not only this natural inclination of the heart of our children and so to our own hearts, that this natural inclination is to reject the truth of God. And not just simply to reject the truth of God, it's seen writ large in, the, in creation so we, we can reject that truth that is out there, but also that in our unrighteous state, in our unrighteous hearts, we wish to actually suppress that truth. We don't just simply say, yeah, I see it and I don't want it. We see it and we want to bury it deep so that we are not convicted by it anymore. So our our natural heart is to suppress that truth and unrighteousness. And especially our kids want to suppress that truth and unrighteousness as well. Uh, We learned of the traits that developed over time of a heart shaped into the image of Christ. So we wanted to take uh, not only the, we want to understand not only the heart that suppresses the truth and unrighteousness, but in Galatians 6, we then see the fruits of the spirit, the things that are the traits we want to see in our kids as evidence of the fact that their heart has been changed and been reshaped. While the natural heart is marked by this list of immoral activities, uh, the divinely replaced heart is marked by the character of the Holy Spirit. And, and that's our goal in shepherding our children's heart, to move them from worshiping all the bad list of Galatians 5 into developing the traits of the good list out of Galatians 5. And that is something that is, um, that, that is, is worthy as parents for us to do. That We don't only want to have goals set for our children to see how well they connect in the universe around us, but we want that goal to have its proper focus in the worship of Christ himself, in the service of his kingdom, and by the refinement of the Holy Spirit that has occurred, just as the Good Shepherd does daily with us in our own lives. And remember, right at the end of that last week, remember, uh, I encourage you to say, hey, this is a marathon, it's not a sprint. We're not going to accomplish all of that in one fell swoop, just as Christ has not accomplished your complete sanctification, he's completed your your salvation in one fell swoop, but he has not completed your sanctification overnight. It's a process of a lifelong experience. The same is true for your kids. You're not going to create these little angels, little demons into little angels later on in one parenting class or in one study or in one disciplinary moment. It takes repeated effort, constant encouragement, picking yourself back up, putting yourself back into the game, and making sure you are preaching those, those lessons over and over and over and, yes, over again. That's our job as parents, to keep at that marathon, to move forward as much as we possibly can. So that's our review. That's where we've been for the last four weeks. And we're going to catch up next week with the Tripp brothers again as they lay it out. We'll dive deeper into some of the theology behind some of this. We're turning in, if you're following the book, Shepherding a Child's Heart, uh, we're we're turning towards the practical stuff within that book uh, starting next week as well. But we're we're, we're not going to totally walk away from the theology. I don't feel right doing that. This is a Sunday school class after all. I feel like we need to talk about the Bible a lot in this class. I think that's what they pay me for here. Uh, So we want to do that. But today, for the remainder of this class anyway, I want to consider just a few practical ways in which we answer the following question. All right. Here's what we're after today in trying to, to, to unpack what this means for us. In light of what we are taught in Scripture, as we shepherd our children's heart, if that's what we're taught in Scripture, that we're supposed to be about shepherding our children's heart, then here's the question. How is our family life to be different from that of the world around us? I don't know if you and your spouse have spent much time asking each other that question. But it's a worthy one for our consideration. In light of all that we're taught to be as parents and all that we're taught to be as little Christs in this world, how is that then transforming our relationship towards our children? What are the practical ways that that works out for us as parents? Uh, That's something that you probably have to stop and consider 
uh, routinely. Now, some of you put that on a checklist to work on every month, and sometimes that spouse actually gets the other spouse to sit down and actually have that conversation. Uh, that's a, a hopeful dream for many people, and, and sometimes that actually occurs. And for those of us that don't do checklists, you probably should listen to the spouse that has the checklist and spend some time actually working through this once in a while. These are, these are important questions. I'm not going to put too big of a head on my wife on that one, but it is important for us to stop and consider how we're doing in terms of our parenting. Why is it that we have a different responsibility as Christian parents in the world around us? It's not just because we come to church each Sunday. Uh, that doesn't mark us. As, if that were the case, we would go in the garage and become a car, right? There's, there's different things that occur in this building, but not because of the building, but because of how we have been changed. And so there's something different in our lives that requires us to act differently than the world around us. And that's what we're after. So how is our family life to be different from that of the world? Well, there, there's a lot of ways, a myriad of ways that we can uh, answer that question. Russ, it's right here, man. There's a seat right here in the front row. No, don't want this one either? This literally is the splash section. This is the reason why that one is saved open. All the people that are listening online just are missing out on this great little moment right here. Too bad. You should have been in class this morning. <clears throat> But anyway, there's a lot of ways we can answer that question. And it, it, having understood the goal of raising sons and daughters to become future brothers and sisters in Christ, to account for their heart, to properly steward the authority that has been given to us as parents to shape their character into the character of Christ, I want to drill down on just three basic principles, three different ways, three, three specific ways in which our family life is to be different than the life of families around us in the world. So first of all, here's the first way I think our life is different. Here's how we answer that question first. We view our family as our closest neighbor. We view our family as our closest neighbor. In Deuteronomy 6, you'll remember that before Moses gets into the meat of what we call the, the foundation of our biblical parenting in verse 7, uh, that part that starts with, in these words that I command you today, that's the foundation part of what we talked about a couple weeks ago. But before that, in verse 4, he talks about what is known or has become known as the Shema. Now, the Shema is, is I think, Hebrew, and it's anyway what uh, teachers use to sound like they know what they're talking about. They, they throw out funny words like this. Uh, but for Judaism, the, the Shema became the most essential point of the Jewish faith. And by extension, and we're going to see this in a moment, uh, this is a very central part of our Christian faith as well. You know what it is. You've heard it before. It's Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, and here's what it says. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. If you've been in the church for any length of time, you probably have heard this. If you grew up in Sunday school, you really heard this phrase, right? And it should be. This is something that we should have inculcated within us. This is, this is good for us. And, and for a millennium, the leaders of Israel built their entire religious tradition off of this fine point. Uh, they followed the commands of Moses. They followed it to the literal jot and scintilla. Uh, that, of course, includes us in, in their own parenting as well. Uh, and that was the very next verse that Moses then goes into. He, he, first, Moses says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your might. And then in the very next verse, he says these, that these things, the love of the Lord with everything that you have, that's to be on your heart. The practical outworking of that is in verse 7 of Deuteronomy 6, that as you parent, you would diligently teach them, that them refers back to the Shema, the love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might, that you would diligently teach these things, them, to your children. So now, we got that, right? That's the nation of Israel, and that's put in place. Now, fast forward 2,000 years. We've got an entire millennia of religious tradition, two millennia of religious tradition that, that intervenes in that, uh, that, that, that section there. And now we come to the, the, the promised Messiah. He's now on earth. He's actually teaching in his earthly ministry, going throughout Jerusalem, teaching on the law and the prophets. Uh, and, and now this true and better Moses has arrived on the scene. And in the middle of his ministry, the religious leaders are seen taking turns to sort of question, and if you want to be more cynical and I think truthful, undermine the teaching of Jesus. And we see this in Matthew chapter 22. And if you read through the entire chapter, it's kind of fun to watch. You see, first up are the Pharisees, and they're seeking to, they're asking questions about what our duties are to Caesar and paying taxes. And, and then the Sadducees step up after Jesus kind of settles that question of the Pharisees. The Sadducees step up 
and they try to catch Jesus up on the question about the resurrection. And man, did they gloriously fail with that one. Uh, and, and perhaps the Pharisees become a little bit annoyed with the Sadducees at their inability to trip Jesus up. And so they, they well, I like how Matthew describes this in, in verse 34 of 22. He says, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And you can just kind of see these guys, right? Kind of huddled up in the corner. Man, those Sadducee guys, they kind of stink. They, they didn't know how to ask the right questions. They roll their eyes at how badly things had gone for them. They think that they can do a whole lot better. And so they work up this plan. Okay, this is the question that's really going to put Jesus down this time, right? We're going to really trip him up this time. And of course, out from that meeting, the, the religious leaders elect who? Well, they elect, they elect a lawyer. They elect a lawyer to ask the next question, which is just proof again that our own human nature is very quick and very willing to sacrifice a lawyer to save their own skin. This is just what they do. Here's what Matthew says as, as they push the lawyer to the front of the line. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You can kind of see the lawyer go, all right, I'm out. And gives it back to the, the, the religious leaders. But what Jesus is teaching here, he's teaching the essence of the Christian faith. What is, what is central to him, to Christ, to the Messiah, under this new covenant that he's making in his blood. He says that the Shema still reigns supreme. That's still the first and greatest commandment that there is. But there's also a horizontal component to this, this command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. If that's the vertical command, then there's this horizontal command as well that flows from this vertical duty to God. And our vertical relationship with God is predominant. That's our primary duty. But our duty horizontally to our neighbor is like unto it. So those two work in concert, according to Christ. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. Love your neighbor as yourself. All right. So, some years ago, a guy by the name of Vodi Bakum, I'm hopefully you've heard of his name, he wrote a great book called uh, Family Driven Faith. Now, I've got a couple little quibbles with Vodi about that book, but I'm not going to be uh, in large. I'm, I'm happy to recommend that book to you, right? It's Family Driven Faith. It's essentially a 200-page exposition of Deuteronomy 6. Uh, and it was very transformational and very um, convictional towards me, especially as a husband, as a father. But at the outset, he points out to the, he points to the very notion of our duty towards our neighbor. Here's what he says. He says, my family is the primary place where my walk with Christ takes on flesh. If my wife doesn't qualify as my neighbor, who does? How could I possibly make an argument for the integrity of my walk with Christ if I can't love my closest neighbors. And here's where I want to rest for us in answering that question. How are we marked differently in this world from the world in our parenting? The point that I'm trying to drive you at, and perhaps not getting there exactly right, but I hope that the Spirit is driving this to your heart, is that the duty to love your God that Moses talked about is married to that duty to love of neighbor. And if that neighbor is anybody... It has to be primarily our family. And even more primarily, it has to be that spouse that has agreed to marry us. That, that is a beautiful little picture for us to consider. I love how Bodhi says that, the, that my family is the primary place where my walk with Christ takes on flesh. The primary. It's not the only place where this works out. We understand that, don't we? But it is, in fact, the primary place, if only because that is this place where we spend the most amount of our time. So I don't think it's at all a coincidence that immediately following Moses' articulation of this thing we call the Shema, that we hear the command from Moses to the Israelites to teach diligently their children, all that he has commanded to them. And so too, I think, does Jesus in this sense. If we love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our might, then we also must love our neighbor. And that starts right in the family that we find ourselves in. If we look at the world around us, we see uh, how antagonistic it is to our faith once for all that has been delivered for, to the saints once for all. Uh, ours is a culture that views as hateful the simple concept that God created us as male and female. 
Uh, we have an education system that is actively working to separate children from their parents. And after all, they say, educators are experts and parents get in the way of all that genius. And so they got to be separated from their kids so that they wouldn't screw up what these divine educators are, are doing to our kids. Our, our media, and that's no offense to the educators in the room, they're just, that's they, not you. Uh, but our, our media also bombards us with messages that hopes to seduce us away from loving the Lord with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our might. In fact, the very idea of having kids is, is unpopular in today's culture of death. The notion of having more than 2.5 on average kids, I've never quite found that 0.5 in our kids, but the notion of having more than that is somehow viewed as environmentally aggressive, that you're actually doing harm to the world around us by having more than these kids. You're, you're absorbing all these resources that are in, 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 in a waning supply. But here's Moses now, standing on the edge of sending the people into a land that had been promised to them, this covenant that God had made with the, land of, with the nation of Israel to give them a promised land. He's going to send them into this promised land, but that land is not empty. It's actually filled with a whole bunch of pagans. And Moses, standing on the edge of this promised land, he says, look, you need to love the Lord your God with everything you have, and when you're doing that, you need to diligently teach your children to do the very same thing. So now here you and I are in 2023, 4,000 years removed from Moses standing on the edge of that pagan promised land, and here we are living in a land of pagans. We have no less duty to continue that diligent instruction of our children. Our first responsibility, our first neighbors, must be to the family that is around us. And so Christ's command to that Pharisee is a command to us as well. Love the Lord your God with all that you have, and love your neighbor. So, how is your family different from the world around us, even inside the everybody's a Christian area of the suburbs of North Texas? Uh, the first answer to that is that we view our family as our neighbors. We take seriously our duty of teaching them, our children, our neighbors, diligently to love the Lord our God with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their might. And we don't neglect the fact that there are other neighbors to whom we owe telling them of the good news of Jesus Christ, but our Savior says that the whole of the law and prophets hangs on grasping the reality that we must individually love God with everything that we have and then turn with that individual attention to the teaching of that truth to our neighbor, to our family, to our children. It's in that context that, that Vodi says that our walk, puts, uh, the walk with Christ puts on flesh so what does that look like in our families? Well, am I showing Christ to my kids? Boy, dads, husbands, that's, that's a tough one. Are, are we modeling Christ's sacrificial life of love of his church toward our wives and in full view of our kids so that, well, I mean, this is what they're supposed to be catching. They're supposed to know of Christ's love for his church. What his relationship looks like is evidenced in how dad, mom, husband, wife, you are interacting with one another, and especially dad, how you are demonstrating that sacrificial love towards your wife. That's how God the Father images on this earth this relationship that he has with our church, with his church. Are you imaging that for your kids? Wives, you're not off the hook here. Are you submitting and giving appropriate reverence to your husband so that your family knows how the church is likewise to submit in all things to Christ's leadership in the church? Are, are, we, are, we, are we different than the world is on this point? Are our husbands living a life of sacrificial love? Wives, are you, are you doing what the world tells you not to do? Are you actually submitting in full reverence to your husband out of reverence for Christ and his church? Husbands, you're showing God's relationship to his church. Wives, you're showing how the church relates back to God. This is a beautiful image that we cannot miss. And if we do, we're missing the very thing of this love for neighbor, this love for God that, that we're supposed to be teaching to our kids. Do, do our children see us as engaged in the common graces that God has given to us? Is the personal study of the scriptures, of prayer, and of worship a known priority to your children because they see it in you? How do we teach our children to navigate the world through the lens of Christianity um, and then perpetuate the faith into succeeding generations and grow the local body of believers if we don't even like being together as a family. Let us be distinct from the world around us. We should orbit our entire lives 
around the family structure itself, our family itself. If you wish to keep, if you wish to shepherd your child's heart, create then a sheepfold in which your sheep, your little ones, may comfortably graze. Cultivate a family life. I think that's the first answer to how practically we begin to be dis- different from the rest of the world when it comes to parenting. And by the way, did you notice that there was no incredible revelation right there? It's doing the simple things. You know, this is, this is the basic blocking and tackling, have a fielding a ground ball, of shooting a free throw. All the basic things you have to do to be successful at winning the game, it just means showing up. Right? And what is Woody Allen's great quote? He was also using a 98% line. 98% of life is just showing up, right? If you want to succeed in life, show up to life. If you want to be a parent, be a parent. Go to church, read the Bible, all the basic things you know already to do that is having a tremendous impact upon your immediate neighbors. So that's the first answer. Our our first response to how are we different in terms of parenting from the world, the first response is that that we're treating our family as our first neighbors and we should be doing so. Second, the second answer to that question is that the church is our serving ground, not our children's parents. Our church is our serving ground. It is not the parents for our children. It was in part on this point that I, I blame, and maybe I should actually say I thank, Vody Bauckham for helping us leave a church. Uh, Vody Bauckham taught us, or basically convicted me, and, and Jenny as well, actually convicted her first, and she did what the book says at the end, is to, if you feel something about this and your husband's not doing something about right about this, hand him the book and have him read it. And she did, and I read it. And I was, I was convicted about it. Uh, when Jonathan was very little, we, uh, and Josh was just a, a little toddler, we were attending a very large church back in Charleston, West Virginia, and it had everything. I mean, it was a beautiful facility, really big. It was, in, by West Virginia standards, a mega church. I mean, it looked like you know, a little dinky chapel in comparison to the you know, Prestonwood or something like that. But it was a mega church for, for West Virginia. And it had a separate worship space even for the kids. This was not like a little nursery where the kids could be kind of safely contained while mom and dad worshiped elsewhere, did their things. I think there's a place for that, by the way. I'm not railing against nurseries. I think that's an important place for the life of the church. But they called this space, this separate worship space, they called this base camp for the kids. Uh, And the children's pastor led an entirely separate worship service for the kids. So you would come in, you would go downstairs, you drop the kids off, you get a little sticker and a tag. Uh, and I think they got your phone number to call you or something like that. I don't remember. But you dropped them off, and you went and did your thing. And two hours later, you came back and picked them up. That was the, kind of the essence of what they wanted going on there. Well, ironically, and quite ironically after the fact, Vody Bauckham is invited to this church, which is sort of hilarious, frankly. Uh, and I don't think they realized what they were getting. And they, he had just had some good talks, and the pastor invited him to come up. And he was actually... Uh, Admonished between services, actually, which is a whole other story. It's just kind of funny. But he shows up at this church. He, he talks only as Vody Bauckham is prepared to talk. He speaks very frankly. And then suddenly, Jenny and I start looking around the church. And we realize that in the sanctuary, maybe 500 people sitting in it. The only one that's under the age of 18 is our four to five-year-old Jonathan. That hit hard on, on the two of us. Why is it that so many in the church wishes that we hide our children from view. I don't understand that. Now, this is different, and maybe that's why you're at this church. This church is different from that fact. But I I think even even in ourselves, we have a tendency to be embarrassed by the presence of our own children inside the worship service. And and I'm just going to rebuke you for that. All right? And and I started there. Okay, I'm in the same place. I'm coming from this 17 years ago or so. But I'm going to tell you that we have a church culture in this country that professes to be very pro-life about having children, or at least not killing them in the womb, but then we have this sort of unwritten, unspoken desire to sort of push them off to the side. Friends, that is a lie from the pit of hell. Don't buy that. Why have we allowed even youth ministry to take over being a church? That's, they're not our kids' parents, as good as youth pastors may be. And I grew up in the height of youth pastorism. It's like good stuff, but it's not what the church is. Youth ministry should not and cannot replace the duty of our parents. How is it that we as parents have delegated the duty and maybe we haven't here, but we could be tempted to do so, to, to delegate that 
that duty of diligently teaching our children to love the Lord our God with all of our being to youth pastors down in base camp. Maybe some of you have similar stories to Jenny and me, and we realized something that was amiss, and that wasn't the model of the early church, certainly to segregate the children by uh, the church by age, as if the church service was something just for adults. Church ought to be our serving grounds as a family. That's where we learn how to serve one another. That's how we learn to go beyond just the neighbors inside of our own house. We learn to be neighbors more broadly within our church. We, we, we don't just simply come to dump our kids so that they might catch a spiritual message down there in base camp. If that is the only place our kids are learning to worship, then we're not doing much to realign their hearts in worship. This is a place, as wonderful as it is, it's the manifestation of the church, the local body of believers. It's not your kids' parents. Part of teaching them diligently is to actually show them what it means to be a part of the church. That means serving the church in some way. And look, I'm not saying come be an elder or a deacon or a Sunday school teacher. It may just mean, like when I was about four or five years old, now this is going back 40 years ago, and I have this vivid memory, and I was there about a month ago to see it still. It's still there. I walked on it. I was four or five years old. My dad took me. We were living in Pennsylvania at the time where I was born. Uh, he took me along on a men's work day at the church, and I remember working with my dad and with a bunch of the other men laying sod on the ground. That grass is still growing that he and I laid. We literally built the church around, like the physical location. And I remember that. I recall understanding very well that this was one way in which we serve the physical location of the church. Back in West Virginia, I took my son, uh, one of our parishioners, uh, he was a, just a dear old saint of a man. I love this guy, Art Strother was his name. Art was just a wonderful man. And he was very sick. He was in the hospital, you know, not the kind of like the contagious sick, but just you know the internal organ sick, right? So I took Jonathan with me to go visit him in the hospital. And Jonathan was probably seven or eight years old at this time. Uh, we go to the hospital, and I read some scripture over my friend. We pray for him together. I, look, I've told you before, I'm not the best guy for the bedside manner thing. And this is, so it's kind of awkward to me. I, I'm, the, I'm the kind of the fist of the body of Christ. I'm not really the, <laughs> right? That's kind of what I do. But it, like, we needed this moment of, of being beside. And so I, I did the best I could. And I think the older guy just kind of ignored me after a fact. And as we're leaving... Uh, Jonathan gave him this great big hug in the hospital bed. And I think Jonathan felt a little awkward, so he just gave him this hug because he didn't know what else to do. Well, that saint then returned from the hospital, and those two had a little special bond. Uh, he remembered Jonathan, Jonathan remembered him, and this led to this wonderful, I mean beautiful, uh, cross-generational opportunity to, to encourage one another in the faith, to, to care for each other, to see each other. He got to see the gray hairs, and he got to learn from the gray hairs that were not mom and dad. This is very important. This is what I'm talking about with the church. We serve the church, the local body of believers, together as a family. It's our serving grounds as a family, and our kids need to learn that it is true. Plugging into service wherever we can, wherever, wherever they can plug it, whether it's just lifting the pallet of sod and dropping it on the ground, we're learning to serve the church around us. Today's kids are tomorrow's elders and our deacons and everybody else who serves the church in some small group capacity or whatever it might be. There's one more thing about this, because I haven't stepped on enough toes quite yet. <laughs> let, let, let me stomp a little harder with my boots. Our children need to see you worship. That's why we don't separate our kids here, sending them down to base camp. They, they don't need their own service. They don't need a junior church or their own kids' church. Our kids need church. Our kids need to see you moved in worship. They need to see elder saints deeply engaged in the adoration of God the Father. They, they need to see, they're going to learn more lessons than any Sunday school teacher can provide just by seeing you and me having our hearts convicted, maybe even convicted to the point of tears and kneeling in repentance, whatever it might be, your kids need to see this. They need to hear you singing, even off key, the great hymns of the faith. 
They need to see mom and dad embraced together, singing in adoration of our great God. They need to be, from this low perspective, looking up and seeing you, to be in, having to turn outside of Mr. Darwin to see the screen to be able to sing. <laughs> they need to see these things. Don't rob your children of this privilege. Instead, you have to teach them, and you have to teach them diligently to be a part of the church. And that first means, this should be obvious, but let me just state it because we're so good at missing obvious things. If you're going to teach them about these things, then you need to be here. Do not forsake the gathering of believers. Be present. Be with us. Those of us on the microphone, I'm tapping you just to remind you, you need to be here. It's not good enough to listen to this online. I'm glad you can go back and catch up on all the fast things I said. That's important. That's good. I get it. But you need to be here. It's hard to teach our kids to be part of the church if we're not actually present in the church, physically worshiping with one another. But on a practical level, let's get real granular on this. That means that our kids have to be prepared to come to church. Well, we know when that's going to be. We haven't changed the time in a long time, right? This is always going to be 10 and 11 on Sunday morning. That's the seventh day of the week. We're, we know when that thing falls around on the calendar, so we know when it's going to happen. That may mean that we've got to order some other parts of our life around that thing. So it may mean giving up that late-night activity on Saturday night to make sure that everybody's well-rested for Sunday morning. It may mean choosing to not do stuff on Saturday so that our kids are not overtired to be here the next morning. Guys, this is not going to last forever. Uh, these kids will be able to handle more late nights and more activities on a Saturday maybe than they can right now. Get through those hard parts. Be prepared for these things. Uh, it may mean um, uh, getting up earlier than your kids so that you know, you're ready to meet their uh, early morning as well. That, it, get an early breakfast together so that their metabolism isn't getting in the way of being in church. It means, let's just be real blunt, it means going to the potty before you get into the sanctuary. You get them ready. If, that means you take them even if they don't have to go right now. This is the time to get ready. and to be, You can go talk to Joshua about how bad I enforced that rule. You go before, but don't make a mess because that's on you, right? <laughs> it means being a part of the service. And, and this isn't about Junior or his needs alone. It's about how they fit into the body of believers. So guys, keep your kids in the service. It's okay. Teach them to be there. They're not going to get it the first Sunday. They're not going to get it the second Sunday. They may not get it the 400th Sunday. But they've got to see that repeated uh, reminder that you know, they can be squirmy. They're kids. That's what they do. They wheel around. Some of you do that during the services for Pete's sake. <laughs> but teach them what it means to sit through that service. This is part of our worship. We already know that we stand up and sit down at certain parts of the service. They need to know that as well. They need to learn that. Help them do that. Look, I brought a visual aid with me here today, and this is why you people on the podcast don't get this benefit, but I actually went upstairs and got this from my son. We, we picked these up. It's just a simple clipboard that's got a little you know, thing in the, inside of it all. We picked this up, and we put stacks of paper inside of it. And actually, I printed off. This is what I printed off, actually, and stuck inside of it all. And they had pencils and crayons and other things. But this is what my boys would carry to church with them. They would literally carry this to church when they were smaller. Uh, I gave them this little thing on the front here, which I'm happy to give to you if you want. And it's just a little kids' notes thing that I, I found somewhere and modified for myself. Uh, and it's their chance. And this is age appropriate, so you've got to kind of structure this for your kids. But I would give them a passage that the scriptures that we're going to be taught about. So I'd write that at the top, the, the passage, the verse, or whatever it was that the pastor would preach on. And then it says, put this verse into your own words. So the kids would actually have to pull their Bible out and kind of paraphrase what they're being told about. And, and so they're thinking, they're engaging in this. What is the main thought that the pastor wants you to remember today? And I'd have them write that out on there if they, they could actually pull it together. And what did I learn about Jesus in this sermon? And sometimes that was a hard one for them to pull together. So they would put out, you know, Jesus and God and Savior. And then they put uh, little scratch marks here to see how many times the pastor said Jesus and God and Savior during the sermon or whatever that day. Just, I want them to be engaged, what they're learning about there. Uh, what questions do I have about this sermon? Because kids have questions. There are big words. I remember this, this study about the, 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 sorry, the horror of Babylon that we've been having the last couple of weeks. I remember when Dr. Jill Hamilton came to, uh, Jim Hamilton came to our church a couple years ago. He preached on that passage and said the horror of Babylon like a hundred times in the service. Our kids had questions about what the horror of Babylon was all about. <laughs> I made mom answer those questions. Um, but there are going to be questions that arise as a result of these sermons. Write them down. 
and take them and talk about them. What words did I hear or read about that I don't understand? And they would write them down and we would increase it. Then after they would do this, we would get done and the kids would stay in their seats and we would sit down and go through these things. Okay, show me what you wrote in your words. This is great, Jonathan. Way to be. I'm glad you see you. Right. What's his main thought? Josh, you really captured that well. It's really elementary. Sometimes you'll get some beautiful theological statements that come out of your kids' hearts on these things. It's incredible. What questions do you have? We'd sit there in the pew just going through these things. And that became just routine for our kids to be able to do. You don't have to do this. I'm just giving you one visual aid of what you can do. But I'm telling you, that we've got coloring pages out in the front foyer if you want to pick those up. You can print off things. I'll give you this copy if you want. I don't have any trademark on it. Take it and use it for yourself. Just get a blank piece of paper and write Jesus, God, and, and Lord on it. And have your kids do check marks. They can at least do that. And you can look and say, no, you missed that one. And it's a great competition thing. It's fun to do. Teach your kids how to do that. I mean, if you got to go get them notes, you got to get them coloring pages, pack goldfish crackers, whatever it is, get them. Help them to settle in and discipline them. Look, if you got to take them out, I was talking about this with the boys this morning. They were remembering. They actually counted up the amount of times I took them out of, out of the service and brought them back in. They didn't have to. They remembered how many. I had forgotten how many times. They knew them by the number, like by the exact Digit. They're comparing, no, you got taken out more than I did. Like, they knew that kind of stuff. I'll never forget our pastor, uh, who this was before we got there in West Virginia, his pastor in the church in Ohio, and his, his uh, daughter was especially rambunctious. And at one point, he had to take her out. This is the pastor, remember? He had to leave the sermon, take her out, and on the way out, she's going, not again. She's going out. It's terrible. And then, like, he's sitting there in the middle of his worship, like, uh, pr- uh, preaching, takes her out, you hear, whack. A couple minutes later, they come back in, and he picks back up preaching. <laughs> if the pastor can do this, if the pastor is dedicated to doing this, Leah, we have stories? I don't know. I'm not going to get into that, Caroline. That would be unfair. If the pastor can do this, you can do this as well. We are trying to create a community for each other. This is a community of believers. Teach your sons and daughters that the church is where we have our hearts refined, where we learn to serve. We're over time, but let me just rush. And I know you think I'm rushing already, but this is going to be really rushing now. I got one last question, one last answer here. Uh, the way our family life is different from the world, finally, is that the home is the center of family life. There are, there are very quick three observations on this point. Number one, as a family, we ought to at least be together. Uh, And and I was going to go back to Ephesians uh, 5 to look at this, verses 15 through 21. I'll let you guys look at that later on. But what Paul says there is that we got to use the best use of our time, make the best use of our time because the days are evil. We don't have a lot of time on this earth. And they tell you when you have a baby that time goes fast. You have no idea how fast that goes. It's just like that. The days are short. The days are evil. Make the best use of our time. Don't waste these moments. Think through what that means. Have the meals together. Prioritize time as a family. Take each other on walks in local parks. Go on hikes in the woods. Go use the elementary school's playground that nobody else is using. Go be together. There are millions of ways to be together, but we got to make the best use of our time. So prioritize with all the time that God has given to you. Make sure you make the best use of that time with your family because the days are evil. We've got to teach. We've got to use that time we have, that very short window of time that you have. It's only 17 or 18 years that you get with your kids. That's an infinitesimal little bit of time that we have. Use that time well to teach these kids. Be together. Secondly, uh, the days are evil. So we should um, fully participate, not fully participate in those evil days. We should be instead filled with the Spirit. And this is the second point that we want to talk about. Shepherding our hearts, the hearts of our children, means we have to help them navigate the evil days together. We don't allow them to go out and do that on their own. Go out there, good luck sheep, try to navigate around the wolves. No, that's not our job. Our job is to help them to navigate from this place to the next place and keep the wolves at bay so that when they become shepherds, they can do the same thing to their kids as well. Short days around us, they're filled with so much evil, we have to work hard to be ourselves filled with the Spirit and to make sure our kids are likewise filled with the Spirit. The third observation on this point, as again is drawn out of Ephesians 5, and we're going to spend an entire couple of days on this whole thing, is that we have to learn 
that being filled with the Spirit must also encompass worship together. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, that's what it says out of Ephesians 5. For the family, this means that we ought to also be worshiping together. Uh, we've already talked about that being in corporate worship together. That's critically important, as we've already said. We're going to talk later on about how important it is for family worship and what that looks like. I've got another thing here that just very quickly, uh, again, this is something I'm happy to email to you or just give to you, and you can go make a whole bunch of copies. But this is a, a prayer guide. It's one for every day of the week, right? And how you pray for your kids based off of Scripture. So uh, we have one here that says, May my children always be strong and courageous in their character and in their actions. It's drawn from Deuteronomy 31.6. Uh, may they have self-discipline. Father, I pray that my children may develop self-discipline, that they may acquire a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair. My wife uh, took this, because I can't do these things, because I, I don't have the attention to detail. She cut these all up into little bit of slivers and then taped them onto another piece of paper and then bound them on a ring. And we go through these with our kids every night. We put our care group member names on the first ones. We pray for our care group people. We flip it over and we're praying for these for each of our kids together as a family when we're doing our own times of family worship. This is important for us. If we're not serious about shepherding our, if we're serious about shepherding our children's heart, then we have to be serious about giving priority to shepherding them in worship at home, not just at corporate life on Sundays, but we're going to view family worship as a primary means of shepherding our own children's hearts. Families worship together. That's a practical outworking of what this means to, 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 uh, to shepherd our children's heart. Here's the conclusion. Here's the end. It's a uh, kind of an extended quote from Bodhi Bakum in his book, Family Driven Faith. He says this, God designed the family to disciple children and ensure the faithfulness and perpetuation of the community of faith through the ages. That's a beautiful sentence. God designed the family. God designed the family to disciple children and ensure the faithfulness and perpetuation of the community of faith through the ages. In other words, God says to use, through the fifth commandment, it says to us, this is great typos, in other words, God says to us through the fifth commandment, if you want to continue to exist as the people of God in the midst of the pagan land that I'm about to give you, you will have to do so by training and discipling your children. God has designed your family, not the youth group, not the children's ministry, not the, the Christian school, but your family as the principal discipling agent in your children's lives, the most important job you have then as a parent is to train and disciple your children. If that is the design, and I believe that it is, and if that is our duty, then it will impact how we order our family's lives and all that we do. Uh, that It will be radically different, radically uncomfortable sometimes, uh, different from the way the world orders their family life, but it will force us to rethink our schedules. It will impact how we direct our careers. It will impact how we choose to educate our kids. Even how we go on vacation will be impacted by, by what we choose to do with this knowledge. But how can it be otherwise? Remember what Moses said here, and I'm going to insert here rather than Israel. Here, O parents of Cornerstone, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And I'm going to add into that, and with all your family. Knowing that that is true, let's go forward then to teach diligently our children this truth. Father, thanks for this morning. Even as fast as these words have flown out of my mouth this morning, I pray that they have stuck in the hearts and minds of the parents here. God, I pray encouragement upon each of their hearts. This is tough stuff, parenting. It's not for sissies. It's made for, for courageous people that you have called to parent your ki their kids. Uh, these are your children that you have given to each of us, and so we are trying our very best to steward them according to your principles and to your care. And so, Father, you have given these kids to us. It was not accidental that they came into our lives. This was not some uh, evolutionary happenstance. This was because you chose to give these kids to us. You've decided to create a family in each one of our families. And so, Father, you must have some purpose for it. And if that is true, and it is, then you have given us the strength for the task. And we need not yield it to anyone else. It has been given to us, and so let us exercise it well, so that one day we may achieve that great saying, well done, thou good and faithful parent. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.